The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Hello, this is Carol Bossert. Welcome to the show today. Uh, I am always thrilled uh, to have both new guests and new friends and uh, old acquaintances and colleagues. And uh, this will be uh, be one of those times where I get to uh, welcome one of uh, our esteemed colleagues in the field, and just have a rollicking good time chatting about whatever comes our our way. Nina Simon, uh, actually, for many of us, needs no introduction. She has she hit the museum field uh, hard and fast, and uh, didn't take it took no prisoners in asking some of the more uh, obvious but serious questions that the rest of us sort of muttered very quietly under our breath. Nina is. Currently, the executive director. I'll let you talk in a minute, Nina. Uh, uh, she's the executive director of the Santa Cruz Museum of Art and History, and she is also the author of the Participatory Museum. Nina has also been a blogger on Museum 2.0, which I I think is safe to say one of the earliest blogs in the museum world and probably uh, it still remains one of the most influential. So with that uh, brief and uh, and what I hope is a, a bright and positive introduction, Nina, welcome to the show today. Thanks so much, Carol. It's great to be here. Nina, I did. Uh, I did not really do your career justice in that uh, off off the no cuff uh, <laughs> off, off the cuff uh, introduction. And please forgive me, but I I think that it's probably uh, uh, more interesting for our listeners to hear in your own word words your career trajectory, and particularly since there are so many uh, young um, uh, up and coming museum professionals listening to the show. If you could just share some of those pivot pivotal experiences that have influenced your career. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I don't have a very traditional career, I guess, especially for somebody um, of my generation. I'm 33, and I started working in museums really while I was in college. I have a degree in electrical engineering and math, and um, my dream as a kid had been to design pinball machines. And over time, I discovered, A, that that's not really a good career um, trajectory, and B, that um, designing interactive exhibits is a lot like that dream. 
and so I started um, pretty quickly while I was in college. I was teaching math um, partly to pay for school and really saw how many people, even engineering students, were afraid of math, uncomfortable with math, and it's something I've always loved. And so I started getting really curious about other spaces for learning outside of classrooms and um, stumbled on um, to the idea of free choice learning and the work of John Falk and Lynn Deerking and their positioning of museums as places where people can go and learn um, on their own terms. And so um, I started out um, volunteering in science and children's museums, then working in those kinds of museums, both doing exhibit design and program design, um, and um, then ended up uh, moving from working at lots of different places for short amounts of time um, to getting my first full-time job at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. And my approach to getting that job was really focused on actually not so much finding the right job or the right museum, but finding the right mentor. I had realized through several different museum experiences, okay, I want to be in this field. Um, I'm okay leaving, you know, my dreams of NASA, and I'm okay making that phone call to my mom and saying, sorry, I know that I, you know, uh, graduated with honors with electrical engineering, but I'm going to do this low-paid, you know, education thing instead. Um, so I knew that when I was looking to get serious about museums, that I wanted to find a full-time job, and I wanted to work for and with somebody uh, who would really inspire and empower me to learn what I wanted to learn. And so I was living in Washington, D.C., a great museum town, and started hunting for that person. And I found her in Anna Slafer, who um, is still at the Spy Museum as the director of exhibitions and programs and education there. And I just was so um, inspired by the work that Anna had done, both with the Rolling Rainforest Project at the National Building Museum, empowering youth to look at their city differently with Cardboard City, and I knew that she's somebody who I could really learn from. Um, and so I just pestered her and her team for a long time at the Spy Museum um, before the right kind of fit came up for me to join their team. Um, and I, you know, did so in a job and at a pay level, which was not you know, where I felt that I needed to be, but I knew that working with Anna and working there was where I needed to be. And it became a really incredible ride that that launched my career in a lot of ways. And so I think for me, when I think about the beginning of my career, the two big things uh, in my mind were, A, getting lots of experience in different places to kind of get a sense of what size and type of museum I wanted to be in, and then B, finding that mentor, finding that person who I knew could be a good guide um, as I really wanted to go more deeply into this field. That Thank you, Nina. Uh, you know, I did know much of that. Of course, you and I first met at the Spy Museum mm -hmm. uh, years and years ago. I, it was a project that was near and dear to my heart as well. And you and I do share a a great respect uh, and and fan base for Honest Schlafer. I think <laughs> she, is, uh, she is absolutely fabulous, and I do count her as one of my colleagues and, and friends as, as well. You know, it's interesting. You came to uh, Washington and you came to the Spy Museum at a very interesting time in the genesis of that museum. You know, there was a, a lot of talk in those days about whether a, quote, for-profit institution right. uh, could make it in a, uh, in a town where, where uh, 
at that point, there were no other uh, museums that were charging uh, any fee. And it also seemed to me that, that you came at a time um, that there was a real culture of can-do. I mean, it, you know, because it was sort of a, a, a little different um, business model, I, I think that also sort of followed through on uh, some of the creative things that you could do in terms of, of programming. Would you agree? Absolutely. And, you know, while I, when I left the Spy Museum, I knew that I didn't want to continue to work in that kind of um, highly themed, um, highly immersive narrative environment. I feel like I learned so much from it and that that difference of perspective, which is partly, partly based on business model, but partly just based on the idea that it's a museum um, that really is for adults and yet embodies that idea of being audience-centered. You know, people always used to say, oh, well, of course people want to go to the spy museum. Espionage is sexy. But being an artist is also incredibly sexy. And yet I think what the spy museum does so well is when you walk in the door, they say, what would it be like for you to be a spy? And the whole experience is about you exploring what does it mean to practice tradecraft? What does it mean to engage in deception? Whereas when you walk into an art museum, there's almost never that sense of empowering you to think about what would it be like to be an artist? What's it like to really live your creative dream? And so I think that there are a lot of lessons I learned from the spy museum that I've continued to take forward um, into the work I now mostly do in art and history museum space, but it did as a consultant as well, really thinking about that idea of how do we start from the piece that is most exciting and really most personal um, to the visitor engaging in the, the very deep questions about what art is or what it means to make history or what it means to be a scientist. That's very interesting. I, I had never quite put it together that way, but, uh, but that's a very important insight, I think, for us all to remember. Perhaps we're coming a little bit closer, uh, to that thought of, uh, you know, what we do tend to put up barriers in other institutions, don't we? You know, we sort of say, welcome to the house of the artist or welcome to the house right. of the, the the historical figure, uh, but we don't uh, welcome you in as if you're part of the family. That's, that is uh, really interesting. Yeah, and I think for me, both the Spy Museum and, honestly, growing up also in science centers, which, you know, science centers in this country were built to build the next generation of engineers. And so they're very much about empowering, you know, you could be a scientist, you could be an engineer. And I think sometimes um, there are problematic sides to what that means about the interpretation. But I think now, especially working in an art and history museum, we're constantly talking about what would it look like if people walked into a history museum and walked out really feeling like they could make change in their community, that they could make history? What would it feel like to walk in an art museum and walk out really feeling that they could live a creative life, that they could be artists? And I think there's there's almost a fear or a pejorative um, re- reflective response to that often, but we certainly don't have that fear when we think about places like science centers. And so I mean, part of that's about the whole workforce development side of what science centers are for, but I think that there's a real opportunity for us to think about museums as places of empowerment, even if you'll never become a professional artist or even if you're not going to, you know, become a political um, appointee, that you it can be a place of creative or civic empowerment, just as a science center is a place to really um, feel connected to and feel empowered with the possibility of how science can be part of your life. 
that's uh it reminds me as, as well as your you your uh presentation reminds me so much of the writings of John Dewey and John Cotton Dana mm. who mm-hmm. also who also believed that museums were not uh, temples in the park but but they were places to empower people to lead better lives and of course as you say that has uh taken on sort of a pejorative or negative connotation about uh you know who you know sort of the them versus us uh right. you're training to the masses but uh, but I I I do see that you have sort of brought that historic thread uh, back to the forefront uh, for us. I, and I'd like to just, uh, I think this is a, is, is a logical segue. Uh, one of the things that you, you talk about all of these topics and more on your blog, Museum 2.0. And as I said at the introduction, I, it is one of the most read, most referenced. I, I can't remember how many follows followers you have but i believe it's uh it's it's quite up there uh I, I guess the question is how you know one how did you get the original inspiration and then how do you keep it going yeah so museum 2.0 started in the fall of 2006 and it actually it's kind of an embarrassing story of why i started it um i've always loved writing um i feel like i learn a lot from writing and I um, had the fortune when I was at the Spy Museum, I really advocated to my boss that I, I wanted to go to conferences. And in my case, I was really interested in going to big national conferences to kind of drink from the fire hose of the museum field. And so, and, and just you know, part of that is I, I don't have a museum graduate degree or anything like that. So my learning has all been on the job and, and from people at conferences and reading and things like that. And so in October of 2006, I went to Aztec, um, the Association of Science and Technology Centers Conference, and I was listening to some of my heroes in the field um, as they talked about this question of, you know, what is YouTube going to do to museum? What does a wiki museum look like? And I remember listening to these and thinking, gosh, you know, here I am, I'm 25 years old, I live in D.C. in a house of techies, there was actually, my husband ran a startup out of our house at the time, you know, I'm immersed in in all of the Web 2.0 stuff that's changing, and I'm hearing these questions from people I admire who are from a generation where this is much more foreign. And so um, as somebody who's a little bit shy and who looked at some of these heroes and thought, gosh, how would I talk to them? I, I literally, Carol, had this, you know, had this boneheaded idea that, okay, if, you know, Kathy McLean is asking this question, if I start to write and think and uh, explore these questions that she cares about, then maybe I could write her an email and say, hey, you know those questions you've been bringing up? Um, uh, well, here's I, I've been thinking about them, and here's some work I've been doing on them. Um, and so it really started as a way for me to feel um, that I could be part of a bigger conversation happening in the field. And I kind of identified, hey, you know, I have some extra time. I have some fluency in this space that people are interested in. Um, I want to explore it further. And so that's really how it started. And the first maybe six months, I feel like I was only writing, you know, for myself, my mom, and and the dog kind of thing. But it, you, as you say, it did it did really start to pick up quickly. It was a good time in the mid late two thousands where people were just starting to get interested in blogging. And by the summer of two thousand seven, when I was leaving the Spy Museum and leaving Washington D.C., um, I'd started getting requests to consult, and I just started saying yes. And so the blog really kickstarted what then for me was four years on the road. 
road, um, working as a consultant all over the world with museums and art centers and nature centers on um, looking at how to make their spaces more participatory. And so I think that the blog has always been important to me, both because it's a learning space for me. You know, I never feel like I'm somebody imparting expertise. I always feel like I'm using it to learn and to ask the questions that are on my mind and to learn from others. Um, but then also for a long time while I was consulting, it was a, a business generator. And, and not so much that I was, you know, packaging products on the blog that I was selling, but that I think that as it got more known, as more, you know, thousands of people around the world were reading it, there was more of a desire um, to be able to go in depth. And um, so, so that was a motivator as well. I, I'd say that since I became a museum director... I guess it's had two times when it really shifted. Um, when I decided to write the book, The Participatory Museum, at that point um, I made a little shift in obviously where my writing energy was going, although I still kept blogging, I think at the time, two times a week. Um, and the reason I wrote the book was really because there were blog audiences, folks coming up to me and saying, I love your blog, um, I'm really you know, learning and using it a lot, but there are people in my museum, especially people higher up, who are never going to read and respect some online, can you package it in a way that, that can be more useful? And so um, the book really was the direct response to that request. Um, and so during the book time, it shifted my blogging some. And then when I took this job and became a museum director, um, which has been a very intense <laughs> work situation, um, I again shifted. And now I blog once a week. And it is, I would, I would describe it as barely sustainable. Um, in some, some weeks, it's a very painful, uh, you know, God, I got to do it kind of thing after already working so much. Um, but, you know, I don't want to let it go because I feel like what I learn through writing and what I learn um, through the conversations on the blog, um, I can't replace that. And I know that if I stopped blogging, I wouldn't fill that time with other reflective learning practice. It would just get filled up with other work. So I'm really trying to protect um, that reflective time and that learning time in my, in my work career. Thank you, Nina. Yeah, that uh, I, I too am taking many of your uh, your comments to to heart about uh, about the need to contain and maintain a reflective practice, uh, even while we're all trying to make a mm. living in our in our field. Um, we're going to go, uh, take a short break now. Uh, when we come back, more with Nina Simon uh, talking, especially uh, some insight she has with then from moving from the uh, consumer consulting field back into uh, uh, a daily grind in a museum and particularly taking on the role of director. So stay tuned. We have a lot more to talk about and learn about from Nina Simon. Uh, This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. We'll be back in a moment. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. 
Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life, and today I have the privilege of uh, talking with and listening to my uh, colleague, Nina Simon. And right before break, uh, Nina was sharing with us uh, her uh, career trajectory and then uh, how she started getting involved with uh, blogging at Museum 2.0 and how she continues to blog uh, weekly on uh, on Museum 2.0, even though she is now the director of the Santa Cruz Museum of Art and History. And Nina, we were just sharing at break, and I and I uh, want to say this publicly on the air. I have been following your career at uh, Santa Cruz. I think that you have made changes large and small, and really exciting things are happening there when we think about museums being creative uh, and learning places. I always think of Santa Cruz. So uh, please... Uh, accept my congratulations on that. I'm I'm wondering though if you could just share perhaps what has been your biggest adjustment as you you know transitioned from something that was a little more open and and in your control to being the director with a board and a staff and uh, all of the things that go along with that. Yeah, I mean. You know, honestly, the biggest transition, I really remember walking in um, that first week and just looking around and being like, oh, my God, there are these people here, and they have needs, and, they, you know, they rely on me. I mean, I'd been a lone wolf for several years and um, and really kind of identified as uh, an independent creative. And um, so I think that when I walked in, I knew that um, fundraising um, was going to be a new thing for me. But I, I don't think until I actually walked in the door, I really realized um, how much management was going to be a huge part of this role and, and how new that was for me. And I, I would say that, you know, a few years on, I've been really surprised to discover that fundraising actually is something I really love and took to. And the management side is something I'm always learning. And um, it, it's something I enjoy learning about, but it certainly comes much less naturally to me. Well, and... 
Uh, we all have have uh, strengths and um, and challenges. Um, I I have them myself. Uh, so so I I appreciate that candor. Um, what. Uh, I, you know, we should just step back for a moment because I always am sensitive to the fact that many people listening to this program are not living in the United States. Uh, they may not know where the Santa Cruz Museum is. Uh, right. So, so uh, it's in California, by the way. Uh, but uh, could you just give a little, just a tiny you know, sort of synopsis, how big the museum yeah. is, you know, sort of sure. where, where it was in its history when you started? Yeah, so um, the Santa Cruz Museum of Art and History is kind of like a, a generalist uh, city museum. There is a separate natural history museum in town, um, but but we do both uh, contemporary regional art and then local uh, history as well. Um, it's it's a fairly new museum. It was built after a big earthquake that transformed Santa Cruz in the early 90s. Um, and so, sorry, the earthquake was in 89. Um, the museum opened in the mid-90s. So it's about 20-year-old museum. So there are a lot of people who are still in this community who remember um, and feel pride about the fact that we made this museum happen, that it was not a foregone conclusion that we would always have a museum in Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz is a city of about 60,000 people and a county of about 250,000. And just to give you um, a little bit of context against those numbers, so the museum, um, when I came in 2011, was really struggling. Um, we're a museum about um, 25,000 square feet. We have three uh, rotating galleries and one permanent history gallery. When I came in 2011, we were really struggling both financially and in terms of relevance and attendance. When I walked in the door, we had about a week of cash in the bank. We were very close to closure. And that year that was just closing, we had about 17,000 visitors. Uh, fast forward three years, and we've had three years in the black. Um, we've doubled our budget, doubled our staff, and we've more than tripled our attendance. So we're now engaging a little over 50,000 people a year. And this is, again, in a town of 60,000. Um, and then another neat thing about that is that that 50,000 plus is sort of our visitor number, but then there's also about 2,500 people who we work with as collaborators. Our model is really based on community partnership. So I'd like to think about the fact that, you know, one out of every 25 or 30 people on the street in Santa Cruz is not just uh, visiting the museum, but is working with the museum in some way during the year, sharing their art, sharing their history with those 50,000 people who are coming. Wow, I I, I knew... I'm sorry. You go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say I <clears throat> I'm I knew that you had uh, you know sort of taken an institution that 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 was really uh, you know f- <clears throat> feeling some some rough times and and uh, made it successful. I didn't uh, I, honestly I didn't realize that the numbers were that uh, amazingly impressive. So it's it's even a greater um, compliment to your to your leadership. I'm wondering, you know, a couple of people on our show. I, I'm thinking of Jasper Visser and a couple of mm-hmm. others have talked about, you know, the importance of community partnerships and also the incredibly unfortunate nature of that word called crowdsourcing. Uh, right, and right. particularly as it appears, uh, as it, um, uh, we try to apply that to a museum world, and you know, and I've right. shared with Jasper and with you that as a former curator, that actually that phrase just still strikes you know, uh, icicles in my heart. Of yeah, uh, yeah. you know, probably I, I am uh, you know, 
it probably just shows that I can't uh, give up as much control as, as I think I can. But uh, perhaps you could just share with us a little bit, maybe one example of how you have approached these community partners and, and, and involving yeah, uh, people into uh, uh, making this their museum. Well, let me just say that I, for me, the word crowdsourcing also strikes icicles into my heart, maybe for a slightly different reason. But um, for me, there's a real problem with this idea that um, all of this community engagement is transactional, that it's about, okay, you know, let's let's get some data out of these visitors, um, you know, let's um, create ways that are kind of tricks to get them more involved. And I think that's really problematic. And I think that one of the things that... Um, um, words like crowdsourcing make me wonder about are how do we define better words for what we're trying to do and how do we get away from words that are mysterious like engagement um, to words that people understand like helping or getting involved um, because otherwise we get cast in these weird business terms like crowdsourcing which don't make anybody feel great. Um, but let me give you um, I'll give you two very brief examples because I want to demonstrate the two different ways that people are involved at our museum. So visitors walking in the door, we always want to make sure that everybody who walks in can feel that they're part of the experience. And that can be as simple as making a comment and putting it right on the wall in the lobby about how we can make the museum better. Or in all of our exhibits, we have places for people to share their own story or their own creativity as part of it. We always think of those opportunities as opportunities not to interact and make and take, but really to make something and share it with others. So for example, when we had an exhibition um, of an artist named Belle Yang of paintings reflecting her immigration story, we created this activity, um, these things called passports, where we invited people as they were looking at the art to reflect on their own immigration stories in their own family, and then they could pick one of those stories to write and share on the wall with others. So you ended up with a wall full of these stories that really diversified the voices of immigration in this exhibition. So that's one side, which is about the casual visitor walking in. You know, you, Carol, coming in and seeing that exhibit could um, could share a passport. Um, but the other side relates to the collaborators, because we know that the ways that people are more deeply involved has to be longer than just when you're on a random visit to the museum. And so we really focus on those 2,000-plus people who are working with us to share their own objects and stories at the museum in a deeper interaction. So, for example, in that immigration exhibition we also, alongside the paintings, curated in 10 objects and stories from community members representing diverse stories and pathways of immigration to Santa Cruz and created a wall of the gallery that was showcasing their objects and stories, um, which had been more editorially managed, which um, had involved more community outreach to very specific communities throughout Santa Cruz so that we could really show the diversity of um, the immigration stories in Santa Cruz. So in a lot lot of ways what they were doing, sharing their immigration story, was very similar to what visitors can do. We gave them more attention, more focus on the design, and really made sure that they were truly seen as part of the exhibition in a high-quality way um, that required a lot more um, intentionality and commitment from both us and them. And so, you know, I think there are different levels of ways that people can participate, and those are just two examples in a given exhibition. Most of the collaborators we work with we actually work with on educational events, 
Um, one of the things that I'm really seeing across the museum field is that more of our attendance across museums is coming to events as opposed to daytime attendance. So we do a lot of emphasis on creating events in partnership with community artists and groups where they are leading the workshops and showing off what they do, um, and we're helping kind of facilitate and create a platform for them to do so successfully and to do so with a diverse audience. I think that's that's a very interesting observation uh, that you're seeing more people uh, coming to museums for events or, or or specific happenings than instead of just relying on having the exhibition per se or the permanent exhibition being available and just and and doing marketing to get people through the door to see the exhibit. Um, do you have some other? Uh, I, I just would yeah, like to explore think, that thought with you a little bit more. Of, I think that D.C. and New York and maybe Chicago, maybe San Francisco or L.A., um, there is such, not only is there such an incredible caliber of the artifacts on display, but there's also a heavy tourism focus on daytime, and it's probably different than in other cities. But what I'm seeing is that in smaller cities, and even actually I was talking to somebody from LACMA, the L.A. County Museum of Arts, a big um, art museum in L.A., they were saying to me that 50% of their attendance is to events. I mean, in our case at our museum, it's more like 75%. It's a big part of what happens here. And I think that um, what's happening is partly due to how people are making their decisions about what to do with their time. Um, they, you know, are, have less free time to kind of randomly on a Sunday say, oh, what should we do? Oh, let's go to the museum. But they are much more interested in looking at and seeing something online and saying, whoa, Friday night, they're doing X. I want to go to that. And and I think that even across the whole arts field, um, my understanding is that traditional arts venues um, are across the board, museums and performing arts venues are struggling. And the one real bright spot on attendance is festivals. And that people are really focused on this idea of, I want to be somewhere where a lot of things are happening. A lot of different people will be there. Um, there's a hybridity and an energy to it. It's a one day or one weekend only thing. Um, and I think that we're just living in a culture now, at least in the States, that is prioritizing those kinds of novel experiences. And in our case, we find that that happens more with events than exhibitions in general. And so we try and really look at how do events open up opportunities to explore exhibitions, but how do we acknowledge the fact that the way most people are going to walk through the door is in the case of my museum on a Friday night. 70% of our visitors come to the museum on a Friday night because that's when they know that it's an event experience happening. That, well, you know, obviously from, you know, if you put your marketing hat on, uh, creating events, these one time or, you know, only happening this month kind of thing does, does bring, uh, it, it gives people uh, an impetus you know, they have to plan their, their time for that. But I'm, uh, and I have always been uh, a strong supporter of, of strong programming using the exhibition more as sort of a framework for doing things. But it seems right. to me that what you're saying is 
as well is is that we are perhaps culturally hitting on a time where people are feeling uh, maybe more isolated, uh, maybe less uh, having less opportunity to go to activities where they will have more of a social uh, idea, social uh, you know meet new people, learn new ideas. That's sort of hard to do when you go to the movies, uh, but uh, you know with with your with your spouse or your or your family, it's enjoyable, it's wonderful, all those things. But it's sort of missing a dimension, uh, and it sounds as if you you have uh, you and others have really hit on that um, at at uh, at Santa Cruz. Would you? If, would you agree? I think so. Um, and, you know, and I, I'm sure there, you know, I always say, look, we have one model that's really working for us here. I'm sure there are many models um, that work, and, um, you know, I'm only smart enough to figure out the ones that work here. <laughs> and uh, so I, I certainly, I never feel that what we're doing or what any museum is doing is prescriptive for the field. Um, but I do think that um, I'm, I'm seeing and hearing as I talk to other folks from other museums that it does seem that events are becoming more and more of not so much even necessarily a focus of the museum, but they're the way people are coming in the door. And um, in our case, you know, it's interesting you bring up the idea of the exhibition as the framework. We've really struggled to figure out what is the relationship between exhibitions and programs in an event-centric museum? And because, you know, I think most of us start from this idea that the exhibitions are the base and the programs are the add-on. And we've started to really wonder, as I think a lot of museums have, well, why, why should it be that way? What if it was the other way? Or how do these things uh, live alongside each other in a way where we don't say one is necessarily more important than the other? And I, I think that at least in museums maybe that don't have um, permanent collections of a very high caliber, I think there's potentially a lot more openness to talk about, you know, how do we think about these things? I, I think also working in a contemporary art space, we're seeing a lot of artists who are working with time in really interesting ways and um, who are interested in projects that evolve. And is it an exhibition? Is it an event? You know, they don't want to put that label on it. And so I, I think we're trying to work with that as well. Good points, all very good points. We are going to take our second break in the show. And when we come back, uh, a little more with Nina Simon, uh, following up on some of these ideas and um, and other, other topics as well. So please stay tuned. Remember, you can always reach out to me at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Uh, send me a tweet. Uh, I'm at at newsright. That's with a uh, W. And... Uh, I always like to hear from you. All of my listeners and guests always give me great ideas for new guests and topics, and that's what keeps this show exciting and uh, focused on, on what we really need to be talking about in the field. Uh, so please stay tuned. Uh, we will be back in a moment with our final segment with Nina Simon. This is Carol Bossert from Museum Life. Stay tuned. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life, and we've been talking with Nina Simon. Nina, as you know, is the director of the Santa Cruz Museum of Art and History. She's been there for uh, a little over three years and has made some amazing uh, changes in, uh, and this is my characterization of of really inserting or inculcating uh, the museum into the life of the city. And this certainly is something that we all say that we want to do for our museums, but uh, and Nina in, in her own way is doing that. Uh, I know, Nina, uh, that you also said that, that uh, you know, and you're being very modest, but I, I take it uh, seriously as well as that one of the um, uh, uh, challenges that we have is, as a, a disparate museum community is is what I and several people call sort of benchmark envy. You know, somebody comes in and sort of says, well, you know, here in in uh, in you know, XYZ place, uh, we have done this wonderful program or this wonderful exhibition. And then all of a sudden everybody says, well, let's just do that instead of of teasing out perhaps uh, the lessons that can be learned that can be applied, but in a unique way. So I appreciate that uh, very much. I'm wondering if we could talk then a little bit, uh, you know, we, so in a way we were sort of following your career trajectory, but we skipped over uh, you as a, as a writer, uh, writing again what has been uh, quite an uh, influential book. I, I talk to so many uh, people uh, when I'm out working with clients and just at meetings who have read the Participatory Museum, have quote from it, uh, carry it around with them. I will, I will 
admit that my my copy is a little dog-eared as well. That's the problem <laughs> with with uh, soft-covered books. Uh, but um, uh, it would be great if you could just talk a little bit about uh, your you know the philosophy about the participatory museum and you know sort of how in the field how do you how do you think we're doing. Yeah, um, so for me, really, being a participatory museum comes down to this idea of inviting people, um, community members, to be actively involved in co-creating what that museum does, shows, um, and is about. And I think that it's interesting for me, my personal evolution in that I really started out as a designer and was very interested in how do we design more participatory exhibitions, how do we design more participatory programs where people aren't just um, engaging and then a new group comes in and does exactly the same thing, but really um, having influence on what happens. And it's been a little, I would say, surprising to me that now that I'm working in a museum, um, you know, on the day-to-day and really trying to make it in as essential community place as possible, that participation um, is a, a key part of that, but it's really as much about affording people the respect and the opportunity to truly be involved um, on a philosophical level as it is about actually giving them physical ways to participate. And so I think that um, in some ways I've become a little more philosophical about the idea that being participatory um, as an institution is really just about respecting and being interested in and seeking out ways to learn from and with um, your community. And so um, I think that there you know, are a lot of different ways to do that. And I think one of the more challenging things that I've been thinking about a lot recently is the fact that, you know, I work in a place now where we are so community-focused. You know, our theory of change, we really decided we only care about locals. If you want to come visit the museum and have a good time, that's that's nice. We're, you know, we're happy to have you here, but um, we really focus on our county because we want to build a stronger community through the museum's work, through the arts, with our community. And we feel like that's a local problem. And so it's interesting that when I used to consult, a lot of times I was working with very big national or urban museums where a large percent of their audience um, are people who are going to come just for that one day, that one time. It's part of their tourism experience. And I think that it's a challenge to think about how do we invite people to participate who are coming in for so many different reasons and with so many different levels of potential commitment and involvement with that institution. Yeah, you've said a couple of things that I just want to follow up on. One is that you have very uh, clearly chosen uh, one uh, one audience, and of course, by saying a local audience, that's many many subgroups mm-hmm. of of audiences, and I'm sure you can parse them in many different ways. The point is yeah. that they all have needs, and you're trying to understand those needs. I think that that is a very courageous uh, uh, decision to make, and I'm. Uh, I it sounds as if your board was also able to make that decision with you. I have worked with many organizations who sort of have that fear factor uh, ingrained in them and they don't really want to make a statement like that because then that means that they can't be for absolutely 
everyone. everyone. Sure. <laughs> and, you know, of course, if you are for everyone, you are for no one. I mean, you have to put right. faces on, on your audiences. Um, but I think the other statement that you've made that is just so incredibly important, and we're hearing it, um, we're not hearing it enough, I think, is this idea of, well, it's all about respecting your community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, um, uh, Gretchen Jennings well, talks about empathy. Uh, right. I'm wondering if, you know, in, in, in our uh, collective quest for coming up with a better vocabulary, uh, mm-hmm. if, you know, it sort of reminds me of uh, there's a lot of work in um, education literature right now about debunking the deficit model of knowledge with, right. you know, sort right. of, you know right. assuming everybody is stupid until they come to your museum and then they, right. you know, are brilliant yeah, because you've ta- right. taught them right. all that. All, all these, all these things. Um, so I, I think that that is something that needs to be um, uh, uh, probably repeated again and again. Um, well, and, that- and let me go back to what you said about uh, you know about audiences because I actually um, I think it's really interesting that you use the word courageous because from my perspective, especially the focus on local is not courageous. It is a business decision. You know, we, our daytime, um, it costs $5 for an adult to come here during the day. And, you know, how much, and, and, tour, and Santa Cruz is a tourist town. You know, we're a beach town. But how much does it cost me to get that person in for $5? And as opposed to who's visiting just for, you know, the week in the summer versus how much can I um, get financially even from somebody who lives here, who comes once, who then decides, oh, um, I want to become involved. I'm a stone sculptor. Is there an event I can work with you? They're generating value at the museum. Maybe they're becoming a member. I mean, even if you just look at it from a financial picture, we feel like the repeat and growth opportunities with local is so much stronger than with tourists. Um, and, and then I think where it gets courageous, which has been interesting for us and a lot of arts organizations are tackling this, is we've really made a commitment to say we want the demographics of our audience to match the demographics of our county. And so we've been doing a lot of audience research, and we've found that we're doing a pretty good job on age diversity, although we need to engage more 18 to 34 year olds, which is ironic because many of the people who are unhappy with how things have changed here are older folks who feel like, oh, the museum has just been taken over by young people. Well, when we look at the data and who's coming, no, boomers and older adults are still overrepresented relative to the county. So anyway, we're doing okay on age. We're doing great on income diversity. Our income diversity matches the income diversity of our community, where we're really putting a big effort right now is around Latino engagement because um, our attendance here is about 75% white. Our county is about 70% white. But the, those numbers sound better than they are because the other 25% of people coming to our museum are about half Latino, half um, various other people of color, whereas our county is about 28% Latino, about 2% non-white, non-Latino. And so we have a big push there. And as I talk to museums and arts organizations, arts administrators, that are trying to really reflect their community, that's where they start to hit a lot more struggle. And even I've run into, you know, donors who will make comments that they don't intend to be racist but really are, saying things like, well, why are you focusing so much attention on those people? They don't care about art, you know, and just hitting up against the expectations of who is this museum for and why aren't you doing 
for me, the traditional museum visitor, what you've always done for me, why are you doing these things that I perceive as being for somebody who's not relevant to a museum space? So I feel like the courage is um, is there in terms of the parsing of different people's needs and values, um, but not so much in the focus on local. I think that that's a huge business decision, and I, you know, I would encourage many organizations to look at what they're getting and losing, um, focusing on tourists. Yes, I, I, I tend to. Ag- agree with you I'm, and I am glad that you stated that it was a was a business uh, it's a business decision on and but on the other hand um, often uh, it's no surprise a lot of business decisions are made for emotional reasons and mm-hmm. and and it takes courage as a director and courage as a board to know who you are and know who you aren't and don't get stars in your eyes to say but wouldn't it be so much better if we were the uh, in the New York Times every right, uh, week right, or right, in Travelocity absolutely. because then when we go to parties, we can say, well, yes, because people from all over the world are, are seeing us. So, I, right, I you know, right. it, it really, it's a, it's, it's an interesting conundrum of where we... And I think that's especially we, true you, for smaller museums that yeah. we're always looking at the big guys um, and sort of apologizing for our size and that's, uh, I think that's a, that's a bad use of our time. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I think there's a lot of advantage we can pull from being small, being nimble, being more um, embedded in our communities, and that we should really be flaunting and celebrating that as opposed to apologizing for not being the moments of this world. Thank you. Um, and so perhaps you've actually just answered my next question, but um, if you had one, what's your greatest hope for the museum community moving forward? And I know the museum community is a lot of things. Um, actually, I think my greatest hope for the museum community is that um, that we can all, you know, um, have the, as I guess to use your word, have the courage to really look at the community that we're in and say, what is the way that this museum should function in this community? What are the things we should be doing, whether they look silly, whether they look um, normal or, or non-traditional to do? You know, what are the opportunities? What are the assets we have in this community? What are the needs in this community? And by the way, looking at both of those assets and needs, not thinking just about the needs side and saying, you know what? If it's a, whether it's a community garden or it's a certain kind of event or it's a certain kind of exhibition or a certain kind of way of interacting with people, let's try it. Let's do it. Let's not worry so much what our peers in the museum world think because let me tell you, you know, museums and traditional arts organizations are struggling to be relevant. And if we keep paying more attention to each other than we pay to those communities who are going to be our lifeblood in the future, we are not going to make it. Very well said. Uh, I know you have a lot of of uh, young professionals uh, that that uh, you minister to and uh, that look to you as a as a mentor uh, for them. Wh- what advice would you give uh, sort of new professionals or uh, or young people considering a profession in museums? Um, well, you know, I I think that. Uh, it's challenging to break in, and um, and that's based on the demand for being in museums. I think that being able to show, not tell your skills, whether that means 
really going above and beyond um, when you're interviewing for a job to diagnose and put out there, here are some things I think could be changing here, or here's something I've created that I think could work here, or here's a curriculum I've created that I could imagine working here. I think really demonstrating your skills and how they map to that institution is important. I think also continuing to encourage our friends who are male, our friends who are people of color, our friends who grew up um, in um, poorer environments to see museums and museum careers and museum pathways as part of their trajectory as well. I'm very concerned about what's happening in terms of who's coming into the field. Um, you know, we at our museum primarily hire people who are not from museum backgrounds um, and who do not have graduate degrees because we're really focused on finding people with particular skills, which honestly we're not finding in that museum environment. And um, so I think that looking courageously at what skills are going to be useful, and then if it's an institution that's fairly formal and how they do their hiring, really demonstrating, connecting the dots for them about here is why me being local, bilingual, steeped in this community, steeped in this kind of programming is going to be helpful for you. You need to connect the dots for them, and um, we need to empower our friends and brothers and sisters to be part of that um, work as well. That's that's fabulous, Nina. Thank you so much. And with that, we are going to close uh, this show. But it's been it's been inspirational. It's always great to talk to you. Uh, you are courageous, and uh, even though you're also a good businesswoman, and you have much to continue to teach our field. So thank you very much for choosing our field instead of engineering to uh, <laughs> uh, to uh, to uh, provide. I, like I have a lot to learn too. So um, uh, always always. Well, we will we will learn it together. And so, uh, with that, we're we uh, thank you, Nina, for uh, being on the show today. And uh, we will be back next week with uh, another great guest, another great uh, opportunity to learn together. So, uh, thank you for listening. This is Carol Bosser from Museum Life. See you next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 